Welcome to The Evidence-Based Therapist, a podcast where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find three therapists discussing cutting-edge research articles, explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Welcome back to The Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. We did read. Yeah, we did. We did. We do. Yeah. We, we read. read all the time. We read all the time. Um, that is true. Yeah. Today is, well, before we get started, yes. should we give a shout out to what's happening? Yeah. Give some announcements? We do have some announcements. We've got SIP2 training, which is our case conceptualization model, but also kind of just like the theoretical background that all Beyond Healing stuff is coming from. Yeah. Um, we get to actually articulate it in full what SIP2 or SIP in general is what somatic integration and processing actually is. And that uh, training is coming up in November of 2021. Mm-hmm. And we are very excited for that. You can find more information on that at our website, yeah. beyondhealingcenter.com. And it'll be under the trainings tab that you can, I believe registration just went live for that. Yeah. And that's for people who have taken SIP yes, 1. Yes, that's true. You do have to have taken the SIP first 1, training. the first yeah. training. So if you're like, ooh, that sounds what interesting. Is that? Uh, to do SIP 2, well, let us introduce you to SIP 1. Yes, Somatic Integration and Processing 1. Yeah, which yeah. we have some trainings coming up as well mm-hmm. as kind of throughout next year. We're we already do. planning. Yeah, we've got one in Tulsa here coming up. We've also got one here in Springfield in December. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all of those dates and more can be found at beyondhealingcenter.com under the trainings tab. And then there's also just a general um, email on there, Beyond Healing Center. Um, at, oh, wait, therapy. Yes, that's at right. Beyond Healing Center. Therapy at Beyond Healing Center.com or, uh, training at Beyond Healing Center.com. You can just send general inquiries there. Um, another thing we have a very beautifully, uh, growing community on Patreon, Yes, which is a platform where, uh, you can join to support podcasters and their creation of content. And it just allows us to continue doing things like this, mm. uh, giving us the opportunity to sit down with each other and connect. And also, uh, in this podcast, at least talk about meaningful research, unpack yeah. it, apply it. Yeah. I mean, spin that's it, bop it. Yeah. Twist that, it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That was like on episode zero. Mm. That was kind of our main posture was we don't want to just get up here or get on to this medium Hmm. and say a bunch of sciencey stuff that then makes you feel objectified as a person who can't understand this. Yeah. Um, which like if you were just reading it, maybe you'd feel that way. Hopefully we're disseminating it a little bit more, making it a little bit more accessible, Hmm. but really that comes into more beautiful light when we get to engage in conversations Mm -hmm. and get to be in dialogue in the moment. Yeah. And actually apply it. Yeah. And talk, have answer questions, give questions like, that's that's where this stuff really starts to come alive. Yes, um, and so that's a kind of that's our posture, even mm. as as the podcast and as Beyond Healing, um, the center and institute. Like mm-hmm. that's that's how we want to go about. We want to engage in those conversations, and Patreon is a beautiful way to do that. Yes, absolutely. And so that is Beyond Healing Center. Um, you can just look that up through Patreon, but that's beyondhealingcenter.com backslash Patreon uh, or Patreon. I can't remember. Just look it up. On I Patreon. imagine it would be patreon.com backslash beyond, beyond healing, healing center. center. That's yeah. it. Yes. 
Um, you can tell that this is an odd night. We're missing Melissa. We are. Who is typically like the a, one that runs a beautiful orchestrator of like this information. Yeah. And giving us like nonverbal cues of like, no, don't uh, like, that's not, not quite right there. Yeah. yeah. Or like, don't forget to talk about that. Yeah, so, exactly. Disclosure tonight is just Bridger and I. But just Caleb and I. Yeah. Again. Another episode. Another episode on intersubjectivity. On no inter- less. Yes. Yeah. Let's see if I cry again. That'd be fun. <laughs> that would be, I would welcome it. I'd I'll, welcome I'll it. hold space for it. It's affect that I you will even, attune to. I, yeah. I'll synchronize my brain state with your brain state. That would be amazing. Yeah. That would contribute to the interconnectivity of my brain mm. moving forward from now. Yeah. So I would appreciate that. Yeah, you're welcome. Not to put pressure on you. I feel none at all. Okay. I feel totally subjected in this moment. That's amazing. Yeah. We've, we've already done it. I think that's probably it for the podcast. Let's wrap no, it up. we're Let's joking. Up. We've got tons of good stuff to talk so, about. So, so much. So it's the continuation of mm-hmm. part one, which we did last episode. Yes. Um, which is Alan Shore uh, wrote a 2021 article called The Interpersonal Neurobiology of Intersubjectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in the Frontiers in uh, Psychology. Which is an um, open access journal. Open access journal. It is a crazy article honestly like uh, we have had so many discussions in which like we're grounded in this mm. because sure again 2021 he's taking so much information from people like trevarthan yes. beatrice bb uh yak pong Sep, yes stephen porges like he is integrating so much yes yeah into this article and talking about the importance of right brain to right brain connectivity mm-hmm. synchronization and then like the development of the self. Yes. Um, and all of that being laid as a foundation in the first year. Well, the first year of life, first year and into like the second year. Yes. And that's including, uh, in utero development of the fetus Mm -hmm. and then greater into the birth of the neonate. Yes. And the infant that Mm -hmm. emerges. Yeah. Hmm. Yes. So today we're going to, um, pick up where we left off um, with a section called right lateralized interpersonal synchrony in face-to-face proto conversations. Oh man. So we didn't talk about proto conversations last time. Um, And so I'm super stoked to kind of dive into that. I think also just uh, it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about the concept of lateralization just mm-hmm. as a way of getting into the brain. Um, yes. In the last episode, we talked a lot about uh, just the concept of interpersonal neurobiological intersubjectivity, mm-hmm. um, just what that is and why this kind of justifies our focus on relationships and shaping the brain. Yeah. And not that we're just making up this connection, but that it's actually the primary means of the organization yeah. of the brain. When we talk about experience-dependent development, yeah. we're talking about experience with the other that's right like the primary caregiver those interactions relationally Mm. form the basis of how later development like what that's grounded on yeah Yeah. yes and that's where when we're talking about right lateralized we're looking at the hemispheric distinction in the brain so not just the neocortex but all lateralized structures in the brain which there are many um when we're looking at the right lateralization, we're looking at the right hemispheres, um, substructures as they contribute to, um, the larger interconnectivity and function of the various systems of the brain. 
Mm-hmm. And there's so much that we could kind of go into and talk about on that. But what uh, Alan Shore is getting into is where where in the brain does processing of intersubjective experiences happen? You know, we've we've laid the groundwork now for a couple of episodes on what intersubjectivity is. Mm-hmm. Well, Alan Shore asked a simple question of the literature of can we identify where in the brain those experiences of intersubjectivity are actually uh, detected, um, processed, and then uh, registered and responded to. Mm-hmm. And this uh, article represents kind of the literature review of that that research inquiry mm-hmm. of what that is. So in this subsection, this this heading of right lateralized interpersonal synchrony in face-to-face proto-conversations, uh, Alan Shore is getting into how the experience of intersubjectivity can be located in the right hemisphere, which in other works uh, very well are thoroughly cited in this present work, uh, he grounds as the the origin of the self. Yeah. He calls it the uh, implicit self. Yes. The embodied self, the yeah. implicit self. Yeah. And that's where, uh, you know, in the unconscious, which is another wonderful book, um, that, uh, the unconscious mind, um, that is a just kind of even deeper dive into this concept of where the embodied self or the implicit self comes from and how it's based in right hemisphere to right hemisphere experiences. Yeah. And, and I like that you used embodied self cause that's actually a term he uses. Yes. Um, and, and again, the right hemisphere, which I know we touched on a little bit last time is, mm. is the right hemisphere has so much to do, and we'll talk about this a little bit more with the TPJ, temporal parietal junction, yeah. with integrating sensed experience as like a being. Yeah. So like my experiencing self, mm-hmm. my sensing self, like those, that is like primarily like useful for uh, the development of the capacity to even engage you as another person. Right. If, if that sensing self is overwhelmed and I'm going to drop out of inner subjectivity and my growth, my development is therefore stunted. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. That's yes. And, and that is also, um, so informative to us as psychotherapists in understanding where some of these symptoms, these, uh, difficulties in relationships, these difficulties in social interactions, um, all of basically any symptom or disorder that mm-hmm. you want to look at where it comes from. And Alan Shore's um, kind of assertion is that it's from primary intersubjectivity of the infant uh, primary attachment figure dyad or the attachment environment that we can really trace these symptoms back to. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm, I want to kind of hit on, this is me selfishly, mm. and hit on the, the idea of a proto-conversation. I love it. Um, I wished you would. Okay. Because yeah, Alan Shore talks about how um, in the first year... The development of primary inner subjectivity comes through this exchange, this proto-conversation between the infant and the caregiver, the mother. And this, um, this, is, this proto-conversation is reliant upon uh, voice, touch, and facial expressions that are, um, in other kind of realms of thought, you would call that like a sub-symbolic expression. Yes. Like it, it is, it's not using language. Right. It, it is using like, um, my nonverbals and right. then maybe even my verbal to, um, communicate, mm-hmm. but it's not in a form of language. 
So it's a proto conversation, but there's like an interesting value to that. The mom, like if you watch a mother and an infant or anyone interact with an infant, you see that there is definitely communication happening. Even without language. Yeah, without language. And that is what Alan Shore is talking about of the proto conversation. Yeah. And well, and I, I feel like we have categories for this in understanding like, um, you know, 90% of communication is nonverbal or whatever, like yeah, a number yeah. you want to make up 70% yeah. or whatever. But, um, our, our, even our culture in the West here has, uh, categories for this and you know that you're saying something, even if you're not saying something right. And yeah. I, that right there is an example of a proto conversation especially when you start looking at the infant's inability to use organized language to communicate meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't know yet how to articulate that it needs something, but it definitely has an ability to express a need for something. Yeah. And very similarly, even just in perhaps there's no need, but there's just an, a conscious awake being desire. Yeah. There's, there's something going on in its implicit communication mm-hmm. to another mm-hmm. that is being registered in the other's subconscious and in their sensory processing systems that really Alan Shore is looking at and saying, yeah, this is structurally dependent in the brain. Yeah. And just because it's not audible uh, in the form of symbol to, uh, you know, talk about language, we're still picking it up. It's still shaping our brain and we're still responding to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that he talks about interbrain synchronization mm-hmm. um, or, uh, yeah, interbrain synchrony. Um, and that is when, if you were the infant, if you were flashing proto-conversational cues, mm-hmm. um, a, a hand stretched out or a smile or a crying or a scream, like in that moment, is my, as the caretaker, is my brain going to reflect that I see your brain? Mm-hmm. Not in a disembodied acknowledgement verbally, Mm -hmm. but in an embodied is my embodied self going to show you that I see you by reflecting that. Mm. Then we've synced up. Mm. If I can reflect that to you, this is like a a sort of mirroring almost. Yes. Like I'm going to mirror to you that I see you. And even maybe I exaggerate it a little bit so that you really see that I see you. Yeah. And now we're in a proto conversation. This, this, um, flashing of a self-state i'm receiving that self-state and flashing it back and now we're mm-hmm. in sync mm-hmm. we understand each other yeah and and you'll see this in and this is a, an example that they that they give um in this article as um or perhaps at some uh somewhere else actually now that i'm thinking about it but of an example of a mother and a child the mother in trying to engage with the baby will exaggerate the their face you know, as yeah. you, you smile at a baby that's staring at you and you don't just do it like a smile like you would to your friend. You do it like really exaggerated with like elevated eyes and yeah. just such a uh, almost, you know, kind of direct invitation to the to the child to start mirroring your smiles. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is short and mm. his idea of upregulation. Yes. Where you, Thank you through play with the child and you can think of like peekaboo or you know, when you're just, <laughs> it's amazing when you watch adults around infants and how they just naturally start making like the goofiest faces yes. and like super expressive. 
that is a way of upregulating mm. the infant's literal like biology. Yeah. You're presenting an energetic increase. Mm. And if they synchronize with it and then you, you signal to them that you see that they've synchronized. So then you match it back. So you have this super high expression, they match it, then you sub, you sustain it and then you gently release that expression on your face that their system is going to gently sort of regulate. Yes. And then you've established a pattern, a dance of co-regulation. This is like, um, and later on in the article, he'll go on to talk about this, but um, that's how co-regulation occurs. It's, yes. it's in the right hemisphere to and right you're talking hemisphere. about autonomic co-regulation. Yes. Like yeah, yeah. of the autonomic nervous system yeah. Yeah. where you meet and then you regulate together mm-hmm. that co-regulation. Yeah. 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 He talks about it in a natural desensitization that happens when the, the brain knows that it is sharing that self-state mm-hmm. and it's synchronized with another. Yes. This is like, yeah. And that, that just that fact alone is mind blowing mm-hmm. that it's not through like me dismissing the thing that's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. It's me connecting with your activation and then implicitly showing you that I am okay mm. in that synchron- synchronization mm. and then you will naturally regulate. Yeah. Dissipate. Yeah. And then your brain at that point knows that that level of affectability is tolerable. Yes. And, and I was just, that's just what I was going to say is like your, your recognition is not in a dismissing of my affectivity. It's, it's not showing me that my, you know, my tantrum or my, uh, upset is a problem, but it's that something that you feel comfortable engaging with mm-hmm. and still being reliably present with me. Yeah. Which like sounds so funny because no one would see a baby crying and just be like, Hey, look, baby, yeah. like, it's really not that bad. Like, yeah. see, look, you're clearly I overreacting. Can, like, that that is so far away it's not that dog isn't going to get through that fence like no one would talk to an infant that way right but what we're talking about we may is send how, that signal well we may sig- send that signal but that's what we do with adults oh absolutely and and what we're talking about with this article and, and you know it may sound interesting to listeners to be like why the heck are we talking about the first year people mm. don't even remember that explicitly well that's because that's the template for inner subjective um, coordination, yeah, and uh, which facilitates engagement. the concept of self and other, yeah, that's something that the article goes on to later say is it's in the primary inner subjective relationship that we get the template for even experiencing our own sensory input, right, our own affectivity, yes, yeah, and it's in inner subjective spaces where you develop co-regulation, yes, and so like. Yeah, I mean, it seems crazy that you would try to dismiss cognitively a, an infant of their affective overwhelm mm. and what they're experiencing is intolerable. But we do this to adults. We don't right brain to right brain synchronize with a small state of, man, even talking about this, mm. like, feels overwhelming. I'm going to shut down and then synchronizing with that. Oh, I just noticed, like, we both... I feel that that was too much mm. like synchronizing there yeah, uh, with adults. Uh, and that comes directly from this research of like seeing how does a proto conversation get built upon 
and become very complex in adulthood, but it's really still so simple Mm. in the right brain to right brain connection of the embodied implicit self. Mm. You look very uh, excitedly um, searching. Well, yeah, so I'm just... There's so much to talk about (laughs) in this article, as we've kind of mentioned, and the way uh, I feel like even just one paragraph could just, we could just spin off into talking more about, um, but basically, you know, just kind of getting, getting into the meat of the article, um, poor, uh, poor just almost, uh, sure gets into, uh, lots of different, uh, interpersonal neurobiology research that has been tracing this trail of breadcrumbs for, for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And in that, some of the conclusions uh, are based on this idea of synchrony. And it's mm-hmm. so the, it's the concept that we've been talking about of the dance between two subjects, um, where, as Caleb, you're just describing, the um, recognition of affect in one does not dismiss the other, but is instead attuned to and co-regulated. That in that, even sub, sub-symbolic, sub-verbal, we are we are engaging in proto-conversation and mm-hmm. thus interpreting one another, yeah. making sense of one another. Yeah. That then also makes sense of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it teaches, you can, you can see how like it at a very grounded level, um, sensory experience is energetic mm-hmm. and like in the brain, there's electricity and energy with every activation. Yeah. And so with a level and like, this is like, for me, what I took away from this part of this, the article was the idea that like, there are so many small traumas for a child to be confronted with because there's experiences that are new and therefore overwhelming. They only become traumatic and require disintegration of mind. If there's no right brain to right brain connection Mm -hmm. and attunement. And so literally I think of it like, um, like a, and I picture the brain. I wish we had video cause this would totally help, but picture the brain and like, there's like electricity that shoots up, but it only gets to like just above the brainstem. Mm-hmm. And then there's like a moment of like attunement. There's that right brain to right brain synchrony. And then the electricity drops down. Mm-hmm. And because there was a synchrony last time, the next electrical charge can go higher up the brain. Right. And then higher up. That's the increased tolerance. Yeah. You get an increased window of tolerance because like I have felt something that is beyond what I have felt before as far as like energy load. And I like, I've been felt by another person and therefore my brain says, Oh, actually I can tolerate that. Mm -hmm. Not in myself the first time, but with another person, which then lays the groundwork for later on, I can do it myself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, um, to me, it, it's not only like co-regulation is absolutely a, a, a product of and a task of primary intersubjectivity. And that I, I just want to deepen our understanding of that too, because that's not just, um, about joining, um, in or for the sake of regulation, like the, the way that Shore talks about it, there are even uh, different uh, laboratory settings that have demonstrated that heart rates sync up between mother and infant in these types of psycho neurobiologically tuned caregiving settings. 
that attunement at this level actually synchronizes biological processes, heart rate, even uh, respiratory sinus arrhythmia, mm-hmm. um, where the breath patterns go, where the energy goes, like all of that is synchronized in these attuned relationships. Now, there are examples where it's not an attuned relationship and there is that mismatch, which then that, when it's templated over and over again, that's what leads to these issues in the inner subjectivity yeah issues in uh affect tolerance issues in social engagement affect phobia absolutely and regulation and mm-hmm. things like that so um i just wanted to deepen our understanding even further of co-regulation to uh this is actually about physiological synchrony yeah he says he says uh, reciprocal affective interchange emotional transmission physiological linkage which is that heart to heart that mm. you were talking about and co-regulation are all aspects of intersubjective proto conversation. Yes. They're happening sub symbolically. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's yes. Yeah. And to me, <laughs> yeah, we both just kind of said, yeah, <laughs> yep. There it is. That's, uh, that's it. <laughs> that's it. Nailed it. Uh, well, yeah. And, and getting to like, I feel my brain wanting to go like always to like clinical importance, but like just sitting for a second in like asking like as listeners and just as people like how much historically have we been taught to pay attention to proto conversations? <laughs> yeah. Like that's not what matters to me in the therapy room. That's not what I was taught matters to me in the therapy room. Mm-hmm. It was the words that distinction. spoken. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah. that's all we really know is yeah. what was spoken. Yeah. Yeah. But we're to pay attention to nonverbals, but only as um, sort of like um, indicators of open to, closed off, resistant. Um, those are some of the things that I remember from graduate school. Yeah. Like you pay attention to those things, but it's not necessarily recognizing the value, the importance, or the even adaptability. the necessity. Yes. Yeah, necessity. Yes. The necessity for those. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the, my first like kind of openness to that was... Uh, reading Yalom mm. uh, and his um, uh, the works or uh, letters to young therapists. Oh or, yeah, I forget uh, I forget what book that is, but he was talking about the um, unfathomable amount of data that is always sitting across from you. Yes, and he talks about how like if you're open to it, everything that like the the client does is data for you to understand them. It's not just what they say. And I think that's like Yalom being more in like the clinical world, having an intuition that sure now is synthesizing so much scientific data to say like, yes, that proto conversation, the language you are using, not with your words, but with your embodiment, the language you're speaking with your body and, and, and all that comes with that state sharing, uh, emotional transmission, affects, uh, uh, state interchange, mm-hmm. um, all of that is very important to how much integration of information you can handle. Yes. And that goes back to that, that affect tolerance window is yeah. when we're outside of that, we can't, when you say handle mm-hmm. that, um, in an integrated means, it means that we're making meaning of it as an adaptive experience that can lead to greater, uh, strength, resilience, grit, adaptability in the future. Yeah. So in that, um, what, this is just so provocative um, in, in what uh, Shore is saying because it's that that ability and potential is established in the primary intersubjectivity. Mm. 
that our ability to tolerate intense affect and to incorporate or integrate it as an adaptive experience that can lead to greater growth afterwards is mm-hmm. based on our experiences in the primary intersubjectivity yeah. between infant and primary attachment figure. Yes. And yeah. not just postnatal, but that actually that exists in utero. Mm. That those that that exchange of synchronization actually continues to develop the substrate uh, what what Shore talks about is the substrate of um, even you know he said fetal programming of the stress regulating HPA axis like the way you tolerate or respond to intense affect is based on experiences you had even in the fetal period mm, yeah that's so provocative yeah like words don't do it justice of like what that actually means mm-hmm. you know yeah uh epigenetics of course but also the way the the mother's stress response system was experienced by the developing fetus in utero mm. shapes its connectivity and structural um uh, development in utero in the brain yeah 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 i think i just want to let that be let that sit yeah Mm. yeah so after that i mean uh all that we've talked about i don't know if actually on this podcast we have talked much about polyvagal theory or the work of dr stephen porges Mm. i don't think so no um, that's another podcast thread in and of itself. Yeah. And we will have one coming out soon. Yeah, on we that. are going to do one. Yeah, we are going to do one because there's been some controversy, which we will talk about. That happens in research. Clear up, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. It should happen. It should, yeah. It's yeah. A, it's an exchange of ideas. So, but uh, the vagal nerve, it's very simply to understand this. When we're talking about the autonomic nervous system, uh, I think people typically come to it through the lenses of fight-flight uh, fight, fight, freeze, freeze fawn, yeah. all these different responses um, that we typically associate with trauma. Well, that's also just a byproduct of the way our body handles stress response and uh, increases or decreases reactivity based on our neurochemicals in the brain. And that is based on uh, the limbic the limbic brain um, in its response and connection to uh, the primary uh, processes of the brain and the brain stem. So as we're in encountering sensory stimuli and uh, kind of comparing them to our lived experience of what this stimuli is, we will have a certain um, reaction that is responded to synchronously in our body through the conduit, the highly myelinated um, conduit of the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. And that uh, can be responded to with social engagement if threat uh, is less than the safety that's offered in connection, or it can be responded to with sympathetic activation, which is the typical association to flight fight, or it can be responded to in the unmyelinated dorsal, mm-hmm. uh, branch of the vagal nerve that is associated with that shutdown freeze response. Mm-hmm. And that that in and of itself is shaped in the primary inner subjectivity. Yes. Yeah. Cause, cause what you're talking about is the, inhibitory modulation of autonomic states. Yeah. And, and in that one of the kind of zones that, um, sure kind of zooms in on and prioritizes within the brain is a right temporal parietal junction, mm. the right TPJ. 
and the the right TPJ is um, is a, a system uh, that has its sort of the the goal the um, the what am I saying um, the like primary the focus of that mm. system or the the mechanism that system is kind of seeking towards is to integrate sensory modalities. Yes. So it's going to take voice. It's going to take felt sense. It's going to take smell. It's going to take hearing those yeah, visual, s- visual stimuli. stimuli, auditory stimuli. It's going to integrate those. Um, and, and what's crazy about the TPJ is that it's so connected yes. with the limb, limbic uh, dopaminergic positive and arousal reward systems. Uh, the, um, the, um, locus, uh, I'm going to say this wrong, Coriolis, Mm -hmm. um, that, uh, generates arousal and attention, um, and is also in the serotoninergic modulation of emotion and sensory reactivity systems. Mm. So you, you have that connecting very strongly in the midbrain and the brainstem. And so the TPJ where sensed experience is being integrated and kind of put together mm. that system is so connected to the amygdala yes to the midbrain the brainstem and then in that way is super interconnected um, to uh, the autonomic shifts yes that happen through the HPA axis and and all of your classic like traumatology brain zones yeah but what sure is adding it feels like it goes beyond kind of the um, traditional understanding or the classical yeah, understanding. Yeah, the classic understanding of like, yeah, I have the smoke detector amygdala. <laughs> right. And like, that's, that's great. Like that's a, that's a very helpful concept, but how does a smoke detector know what smoke is? Exactly. Well, it, it learns that. Yeah. It through, was installed. Yeah. This is what smoke is. Mm-hmm. And, and that idea comes through primary intersubjectivity of what was not synchronized and therefore uh, reg- co-regulated? Yeah, what was deemed intolerable. Intolerable and therefore traumatic because it had no... Secure attunement. Secure attunement. That then becomes the smoke. Yes, whatever that is. Yeah, what, whatever sort of affective experience that mm-hmm. is or sensory stimuli, like those things then get transferred into, okay, if, if I'm integrating this these sensory experiences... I'm going to, because I don't feel like I can handle it, they're intolerable. Mm. I'm going to drop out of inner subjectivity, which then means I drop out of co-regulation. Mm-hmm. And now I'm in a reactive state. I've taken on some objective role that relies on an autonomic nervous system response that is going to be, and you know, we named it like fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Yeah. Um, and, and you're not integrating the information that leads to healthy, complex development. You're disintegrating the mind. Yes. Into rigidity or chaos. Yes. Yeah. Which is adaptive in the moment, but, but it'll, without this like deep primary inner subjectivity that relies on proto conversations and right brain to right brain synchrony, you like our patients, our clients are missing information and it, and it, it feels overwhelming to them because no one has synchronized with them. We right. can't. This reminds me of like Bonnie Baden Knox's idea of like the myth myth of self regulation. That's right. You can't like just force yourself to do it. Yeah, yeah. A forcing 
of regulation resolve revolves around a disintegration of mind. Yeah. You're not actually not regulating you're disintegrating. Right. And this is a great example to me of, um, somebody, a client that I had, I was kind of talking about the myth of self-regulation and they said, no, like through breathing exercises, I can, I I can calm myself down in a panic attack. That's self-regulation. And that to me, I, I think is a, is a misunderstanding of what regulation actually is. Mm-hmm. Because we're not just talking about, you know, calming down from an over sympathetic charge. We're talking about integrating information and lived experience into an adaptive network of memory yeah. processing. Yeah. That's what regulation is. Yes, it's about affect and getting back into the window of tolerance, but then you still have to do something with that experience. Mm-hmm. Why did you get so upset that you needed a breathing exercise? Yeah. Like, and yeah. where did you learn? That's right. Exercise. Yes. And there I love Badenoch to... talks about, I bet it's still on the person yeah. that taught the yeah. breathing exercise. Yeah. Yeah. There was still some reliability and some sort of sensory experience of someone even suggesting that mm-hmm. as a quote unquote coping mechanism. Like yeah. it's not just the abstract concept. There's people behind communication yeah. that, are, that are communicating, even if it is a self quote unquote self-regulation strategy i'm sure there's a person that has a proto conversation engaging with you that is that you're internalizing and therefore feeling as though it's this is self-regulation in a way yeah but also no yeah and what we've said elsewhere um is that self-regulation is really based on the evocation of internalized co-regulation. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's my ability to get in touch with a moment in time where I felt regulated and in, because of our mammalian architecture as, uh, as organisms, um, we have a very difficult time understanding how regulation can be adaptively sought in the absence of attunement with another. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, we can force ourselves to do it, but because of this, the, the literature that this is based on, we're going to then have more difficulty after that experience of self-regulation mm-hmm. than if we were to, able, to be able to experience regulation in the presence and a t- secure attunement with another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, and this, like, to me, like, goes back to that idea of, like, at like the brain, like what we experience is so complex. There's so much integration of information and mm. in how I experience you right now. And like, if, if I had never experienced you before, I would be like different here mm. because this is novel stimuli and it may be novel stimuli that has a flavor of intolerable affect. And so then I'm going to flash discomfort Mm -hmm. or just like insecurity. And can you synchronize with me? Mm. And if you can, then I can take on more of you. Then I can start to represent even more complex uh, parts Mm -hmm. of you in my mind because I can integrate more sensory stimuli. So now I can recognize like, oh, like the quirky nuances of your outfit right where before i wasn't even looking at your outfit i was 
how are your eyes meeting my eyes? Are they dangerous eyes or are they like comforting eyes? And, mm. and how, how are we doing that? And okay, now I notice like your, your boots and I can take in more information because I'm engaged in a synchron synchronized co-regulation mm. based on a proto conversation that allows me to then integrate more complex sensory stimuli into my understanding of what's happening. Mm -hmm. And what we're talking about when we're talking about the disintegration of mind is, yeah, maybe you can find like a pseudo regulation, but that doesn't open you up to more complex yes. awareness of what is taking place around you and in you. You are going to keep collapsing into these old stories, into these old behavioral activations based on how you're interpreting sensory stimuli that feels novel and therefore dangerous or too more than you've been synchronized with. So then it's too much for you to handle on your own. Yes. Hmm. That to me, the implications of what we're talking about to me are just so far reaching. It's hard to, for me to grasp on the direction um, to I, go. I feel that same way. Yeah. I, even though we've talked about the directions we want to go with this episode. Yeah. It's very, we had a whole plan and we've derailed we've derailed. Yeah. Because I, it feels like, um, there's so much to be said. Yes. And, um, I'm also like kind of cognizant of like, like Alan short is, like detailed mm -hmm. in his assessment of brain system, brain regions, and like not trying to overwhelm the listener with that, but also like talk about things like the TPJ yeah, uh, and, and talk about, you know, other parts of the brain that are, that are happening in this primary inner subjectivity that then builds the building blocks for, you know, when you're, when you're an adult, can you handle certain information? at the cognitive level, maybe not because at the proto conversation sensory affective level, mm -hmm. your, your brain's tapping out. It's saying this is too much. Right. And that, that saying of too much or that awareness that something is too much is based on any past experience that's deemed similar enough to remember back to. And yep. say, no, see, this is where we encountered stimuli that made us feel this certain way and pushed us this close to the edge of our, of our window of tolerance. We got to tap out. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and we're not even talking like just, um, like, yeah, I love that you're pointing out, like, it's not cognitive similarity, right? This is sensory. Some, yes. Sensory motor, sensory motor, somatic similarity, which means that there's like even the energetic, like upregulation of sensory stimuli, like the loudness of something mm. or the sharpness of a, of a, a light or what have you can like put the system in like a, I'm overwhelmed. Like right. I'm out. We need to drop down into some sort of activation pattern that gets us either out of here or focuses on something else, redirects attention, um, finds an alternate strategy for what I've been experiencing because this is overwhelming. And maybe it's, I look to someone else, I, I orient, I have a seeking response, but it's not met with anything. So then I, I, I go somewhere else. I drop into reactivity. Yes. And, and, and that is based again on the primary intersubjective experience of the 
infant primary attachment uh, figure dyad and how even the simplest of interactions is is carried through to completion between the two, between the pair of, you, you know, how is affect experienced in the infant? How is affect experienced in the mother, for example? And how can we then move to a place of not dismissal or uh, overactivation, but actually uh, proto-conversational negotiation of regulation and attunement, hmm. um, up or down? Like mm-hmm. if it's a good thing, um, how do we know when we're done with too much of a good thing and can come back down to a more regulated place? If it's a bad thing that we're experiencing, can we work through the bad thing together and come back up to a regulated place? But it's all throughout reliability and consistency of the attunement is the main goal yeah. and responsivity between the attachment pair is the primary, uh, kind of force that shapes both participants brains. Right. Yes. Yeah. I love that you talked about both participant participants' brains because um, they have documented in studies of mothers yes. that their brain, like in the expansive zones of two to three months for infants, the mother's brain is going through its own like... It, like uh, parallel. Parallel. It is shifting gray matter zones yes. to like prepare itself to synchronize with the infant. Mm-hmm. And well, yeah, uh, prepare and respond to and respond to. Yeah yeah. 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 But even like get ready for it. And then boom, now we're here. We're here. Yeah. Like we've already kind of, can we just talk to... about how crazy that is? Like biologically are, are the organization of, of the organism that is human is responsive to a process of caregiving. Yeah. That's crazy. Not just care receiving, but caregiving. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the mother's positive feelings for a development, developing baby are associated with subsequent changes in her own brain, which means that the gray matter in the mother's brain increases in specifically her right insula, her ability to make sense of uh, her own interoceptive experience. Yes, all uh, the, the sensory stimuli, the all hi- of those yes. things. Yeah. yeah, the hypothalamus, the anterior cingulate, and the amygdala as well as the reward-associated mesolimbic dopamine nuclei, mm. which is sort of that seeking reward system. Yes. Um, all of that in the mother is changing in two to four weeks postpartum to prepare for the infant's explosive um, growth. Sensitive in those period of growth. Sensitive yeah. period of growth. Yeah, that's a better way to put it than explosive. I mean, but that's um, true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for the infant, that happens at two to four months. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's crazy. Yeah. And to me, you know, I've always kind of been wondering of like, why, why is it that the bond between a mother and child is so strong? Why? And why is that, you know, just thinking evolutionarily, like who cares? Why is that need to be the case? I get the like propagation of the species, but just like take care of the child. Why do we have these, these very implicit subconscious reorganizations of mind throughout the lifespan in response to our attachment environment. Mm. Why? That to me is like the most meaningful question. Yeah. And it's really what the, the only reason we can be psychotherapists is because that's true. Mm-hmm. If we were just set down a trajectory with no change possible, we psychotherapy wouldn't be a thing. Yeah. yeah. We'd be so rigid in our organization, but we're not, we're utterly impressionable 
even to the cellular level of the makeup of our being mm-hmm. to relationships. Mm-hmm. And when we procreate and produce or, or even have there, there are studies as well of even like foster care systems where it's not a biological child, but just the response of a grown being to a infantile being. These are the types of changes that we start to see in the cellular makeup of the caregiving, care receiving dyad. Yeah. That right there is just profound to me. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's not like, I think the reason I get so just sort of like spun out is because of all of the implications to that statement. Yeah. Like we're talking about our identity. We're talking about our biology. We're talking about our affect tolerance, what makes us flip our lid or not. Like what Mm -hmm. makes us stay in a regulated place? What makes us leave a regulated place? Yeah. What makes us think badly about ourselves? What makes us think well of ourselves? Do we have ambition? Do we have hopes and dreams? Do like all of that has its roots in primary inner subjectivity. Mm. It's impossible to say enough. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yeah, the organization of mind is relationally dependent. That's right. And relationally, relational dependence, um, the healthy development of that mm. is related on synchrony. Am I synchronizing with your self states through my right hemisphere to your right hemisphere? My implicit embodied self to your implicit embodied self. Yes. And we do that through these proto conversations. I'm like even curious, like how therapists are, this is, this was my, this was my sort of bent on tonight was the idea of a proto conversation Yeah, of like how therapists will engage with this idea of, you know, the highest, most complex cognitive functions of an infant are dependent upon whether or not someone can have a proto-conversation with that infant and synchronize with their brain state and how they experience that and then transition and begin to think, how am I in the therapy room, like getting to a place of, do I even care about the proto-conversation that is always happening? Yes. Because I think in counselor ed, I mean, it it feels like that's secondary, Hmm. but that is primary. And and let's just talk. I'm I'm done with the article right now. I just can't. Like, I just want to talk to you about this because, like, I just feel like this is where my. I know we wanted to get farther in the article, but to me, I, I just think there's so much to talk about right here. Of why don't we care about that in a left brain object oriented training environment. Mm -hmm. Why don't we care about that? Why don't we care about the proto conversation? And to me, my answer to that is like, because we don't know what to do with it. What am I supposed to do with it? Yeah. It's just happening. If it's just happening and I don't have control over it, what's supposed to like, why? No, I just want them to tell me how they're feeling. Maybe even rate it objectively on a scale. Mm -hmm. And then we can start to implore uh, or employ treatment interventions that have been designed to, help them in what they're experiencing. Yes. Why care about anything else? Yeah. Yeah. I had a conversation with, um, someone who works in the, more in the embodied practices, a yoga teacher Mm. about this idea of like, how do you view the body? 
because when I'm talking to clients, when I start talking about getting into their body, mm. it's pure chaos. And that's that we don't know what to do with it. When I get into my right brain implicit self, which start to pay attention to yeah. all of the sensory input, all yes. of the organization of experience, yes. all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Which even Shore talks about how like the uh, un- unconscious ego is found in the right hemisphere. That's right. The right implicit self. But like I was asking her, like, what's your take? And she's like, oh, yeah, of course it's chaotic if they've never been there. But mm-hmm. also she said in a yogic kind of way what Shore's talking about. She said, well, yeah, but if, if you're in a safe enough space to feel it, you realize that your body can always contain it. Oh, man. Because your skin has a limit. It will contain it. That's what Shore's talking about in this relational dynamic. Now, she's she was talking more about the physical body. Yeah. But Shore's talking about the relationality of this idea, which is I don't need to like dismiss away the overwhelm and I don't need to like defeat it or even like fixate on it. Yeah. Yeah. I need to synchronize with your experience of it. Yes. And realize that together that's not overwhelming. Yeah. And then, and then we will naturally co-regulate. Yes. That like seems counterproductive or counterintuitive to my like clinical training. It was more of like a, let's figure this out. Let's give them a direction forward. Let's point it out. Let's like shift the thinking. Let's do these worksheets. Like let's, let's not sit in the proto conversation. Right. Let's not synchronize there. Like, yes, let's have empathetic understanding and accurate empathy and right. And, and let's be okay with silence, quote unquote. Yeah. But I think to me that was more so about not filling the space with your jabbering. Yeah, yeah, less than nervous. It, yeah, less yeah. than it was about you actually engaging intentionally in proto conversation. Yeah, there's a big difference in a session when you're sitting there, and it's silent and it feels chaotic, mm. versus when you're sitting there and silent and and I feel you, and I'm like, oh, I know where we are. It's silent, but man, are we somewhere? Yeah, man, is it loud? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. We're communicating so much right now. You're telling me so much by the silence and not like in a, Oh, you're, you're being resistant or, or that must've been a tough thought. No, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm like synchronized with like changes in your body posture. Yeah, we don't even need words facial anymore. Expression. If you give a little, hmm, like I'm there, I hear that. I may even be like, Hmm, back mm-hmm. and like, okay, that provides a template for us to keep going. Yeah. But if not, I've, I, it's hard to describe that falling out feeling where you miss it. Mm-hmm. And the silence goes to like, well, it, it typically goes to an intentional change shift. Let's talk about something else. Let's right. go somewhere else. Or they'll just, just bring it random up. Thought yeah, or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. Or now that I, I'm just not thinking about like yesterday. Right. Like this so they'll move on. This. Yeah. 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 It's like, Oh, we missed it. Yeah. Missed and that, this goes into something that we've been working on outside of just this article. But to me, the self is so embedded in the biology of the person, mm. you know, and I don't think we sometimes even, even ourselves, like in our theory, in, in our theorizing, we, we talk about the self as emergent from, but it is so also just utterly embedded in the cellular organization of the brain parts Yeah, that why a person might, 
skip out on a conversation and, and change subjects and go into a completely different topic when we were just like in like a pit. Yeah. What felt very important. Yes. Very meaningful. Notice that. Right. You're synced up to that for a reason. Right. And then also to feel like the whiplash of now we're in a completely different affect state. What the heck? How did we get here? Yeah. But it is that the, the organization of self of, of self and other that sent a signal interoceptively to change, get out of this, mm-hmm. go somewhere else. Yeah. It, it's, it's a signal from within to start thinking about something that will get us off of this train that is leading to, we're getting too close to the window. Yeah. We well, need to get out of here. Find tolerance. Yeah. Find sensory somatic motor experience that is tolerable. Yeah. Do I need to run somewhere physically different? Do I need to change the conversation? Do I need to shut down? Is just my internal shutdown the only tolerable thing that I've known? Like, what is tolerable? And notice when the person skips there. Yeah. Because then, like, oh, there's intolerable experience. No one has probably ever been, like, synchronizing with them in that moment. And again, like it's, it's hard to almost communicate. We're not talking about a cognitive moment or even like a, a symbolic lingual moment. Yeah. We're talking experience of an affect energetic resonance. Yes. That may be like activated by like cueing using language. Like, well, tell me about this thing. Or like, I'm curious about that dynamic of that story. Yeah. I wonder what comes up for you when I say this. Yeah. Or how are you experiencing this? That may activate it but the proto conversation is in that the expression of like yeah. discomfort intolerability or maybe they orient and say that's like super uncomfortable mm-hmm. i mean that's a pretty like great that's an easier way to synchronize because like they've even said it but the proto conversation is below the the words right I'm just like oh yes ouch so to me, I want to kind of give a summary of where we've been up to now and then see if there's maybe one more loop that we want to take. Um, so Shore's advocacy point in this article is that interpersonal connectedness and experience is based on our lived experience. And uh, that is taking place in the building, in the nurturing in the connecting of brain parts that comes from bottom to top back to front in the brain and as you start to get into these more complex organizations of experience you're involving more complex brain parts Mm -hmm. in their connection such as just transitioning from the amygdala to the temporal parietal junction Mm -hmm. that is a very complex leap Mm -hmm. but when you start to layer the function of those brain parts on top of each other and look at the sequence or chain, you start to get a really complex response from the being from the, from the, the mammal mm-hmm. that you're interacting with. And what Shore is saying and linking together a ton of literature to show is that that process is a learned process and that it is experience dependent, particularly in meaningful relationships, mm-hmm. primarily in primary intersubjectivity. Yeah. Cause that's the start. That's the first template 
that shows us what's meaningful, just as you said, of how does a smoke alarm learn what smoke is? Mm-hmm. That's exactly true for how a being learns what safety is. Yeah. Learns what... What can I handle as me? Yeah, what acceptable affect is mm-hmm. to self and to other. Mm-hmm. We, we learn how to make sense of our shape, our size, our purpose through relationship. Desires, yeah. All of it. Yeah. And and in that, like, I mean, encompassing, like you're talking, uh, concepts of self and other from primary inner subjectivity. That's right. You're talking, um, um, how is an other going to respond to my like expression of this is overwhelming? Mm. Like, do I, do I even try to get the attention of another person or do I just shut down or do I over try? Do I have to amp this up more? become more overwhelmed so that I get attention. Like all of that, like relational strategy finds its origin in this primary inner subjectivity Mm -hmm. that is very early on. Yes. We can't forget the importance of how the structures we're interacting with now were laid. Mm -hmm. Foundation was laid. Structures were organized early on in life within the first year, first couple of years with primary and then the introduction of secondary inner subjectivity. Yes. And that, that, you know, every function of the, of the biological organism is dependent on the structuring of the brain. Mm-hmm. And that is based on one's experience inner subjectively. Yeah. That's yeah. what Shore is really talking about. Yeah. And that's then going to set the templates and the way you organize your experience for the rest of your life. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm sort of curious cause I even, I, I'm even a little self-conscious of how like this work is so like important that I've like felt jumbled, like in like even like talking about it tonight of like mm. how to like symp- synthesize it and like put it together. And like my mind is going 20, paces before yes. my mouth and like um it's it's so hard to integrate information but if you were to give kind of a therapist a takeaway from this section um what would be what would be your takeaway for mm. this part of the article like man i wish you'd take this away hmm Man, I think for me, it's really looking past the behavior. Mm. Don't get lost in what was said or even the way that it was said necessarily. Mm. Look into the person, not just at them and see what is actually creating the behavior that's showing up in the room. Yeah. What's the experience? Yes. Mm-hmm. Of them, of the other. And how can you make that desire and that attunement explicit mm. to the other? Yeah. That, you know, maybe it's through reflecting the behavior you're noticing and even just verbally or subverbally communicating your desire to know its origins. Like, man, I see how hard this is for you. And I just so desire to know more. 
about what it means to you to struggle in this way mm. or to be faced with such a difficult time. And I, not, not necessarily how you're going to deal with it, but if that we could just sit in it for now. Yeah. Yes. Like that, like that moment of like, let's not skip. Yeah. And I think for me, even like a little, like uh, just openness of like a dismissive strategy wants to like touch it and then whoop. Let's talk about out. what to do with it. Yeah. Like tell me how to get out of here. Yeah. This chaos. But like I've learned the importance of like, and this is like what he's saying happens with the infant. And the what infant, must happen in the, in the psychotherapeutic encounter. Yeah. The infant learns what's tolerable, not on their own but because someone's synchronized and others synchronized with their state of experience and they both naturally without effort kind of desensitized and came back to a regulation. Mm. And like we, I think forget that there's power in synchronizing and sitting there. And it's amazing to me how often I'm sitting with a client and I, and I synchronize in a very intentional way Maybe I just lean in more and I say, oh, mm. Mm. and then we just sit there and I know they felt felt by me. Yes. After they just went on the story of talking about this thing that's really hard and I've synchronized with them and then give it 10 seconds and their nervous system and my nervous system almost like in sync will go. And then we can go deeper. Yeah. But Ready for that, another loop. Yeah. It was that moment of synchronized interbrain connection mm. that wasn't like touched and then problem solved. It was touched and allowed for the body. This is like what that yoga teacher was saying, like allow for the body to naturally realize, oh, I've got this. Mm. This is contained in my beingness. And it can only learn that because there's a second person who's short, sort of sharing that weight. Yeah. That affective weight. Yeah. And I had another experience with a yoga teacher some time ago that, um, I've had, uh, reconstructive surgery on my shoulder early in life. And so naturally I kind of favor it, especially in any sort of like physical activity or something like that, especially something like yoga where I'm like, I don't want to put a lot of pressure on it in a weird position because it gets shaky. And I've associated that shakiness to past like weight room experiences right when I got back into the gym after it happened mm -hmm. and how that was a cue to in just a couple seconds, it's going to blow out again. Yep. And so I had just, just intentionally cued that or unintentionally cued that shakiness with uh, failing stability. Mm. And so in a, in a yoga experience with a, with a trained <laughs> professional thankfully i was doing a stretch that uh, I, yeah i was doing a movement that isolated the stability of my shoulder and i started to shake mm -hmm. and i and i let it go like i came out of it i i stopped the movement and that was brought attention to by the yoga teacher and we worked through it together and it was actually not something that my muscle was going to fail but that my body thought it was going to fail. Mm. Not because of muscular strength or anything like that, but it was really just the, the comfortability of myself to know 
a potential. Yes. You had not re-experienced exactly. that activation. The sensory stimuli is of that muscle holding you. Yeah. And you had not been there. Right. And so because you had not been there with an other, your, yourself I listened to myself. dropped out yeah. before you hit that point because that's intolerable. Right. I will go to what I know and is intolerable way, for me. Yes. And the way that they worked through it with me was so beautiful. It's like, we're going to go really slow. And when you hit the point where you start to shiver, like where you start to quiver in that muscle, I want you to sit there and you can ask for support if you need it, but I want you to just hold it and breathe. Mm -hmm. Like what a great example of what we're talking about in the psychotherapy room of just sitting with, don't change. We're not going to go anywhere yet. Mm -hmm. We're going to sit with it and learn from it. Because as I brought attention to it through my breath, the shaking stopped and I actually gained a greater range of motion Mm -hmm. and I could complete the movement. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. But that's that beauty of like, let's not notice it and run. Right. It's not problem solved. Let's not strengthen the muscle. Let's just be there. Learn from it. Stay there. Notice that it's tolerable. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And my comfort as a um, yoga teacher who's a professional who knows what I'm doing and all the all yeah. the objective I see that you're okay that the brain is like okay they I trust them for this reason right um, is holding space for that yeah and synchronizing with the memory of fear that was implicit there very real to that sensory stimuli of your arm holding you up and realizing I can be here mm. this is tolerable but only because another person sat there with me, synchronized That's in right. that memory of fear and then stayed there. Yeah. And even in the article kind of goes into talking about the different forms of sensory input, but they put their hand very lightly on the outside of my shoulder and just, just didn't like squeeze or stabilize really at all. They just put touch. their hand on it. Oh, the warm touch. As it shook. Yeah. And then it slowed stopped and we moved through the movement yeah yeah to me that was gonna be my you stole it oh dang it that was gonna be my like main takeaway is like the value of proto conversations realizing that they're always happening Mm. and then how like for therapists to recognize like don't don't skip out of that Mm -hmm. like contain that space like in your own implicit embodied self synchronize and hold space for their state like i think we all like sort of implicitly know as therapists that people can handle more than they realize Mm -hmm. and humans are much more adaptable than when we're in a fear state we give ourselves credit for but people are only going to learn that in a relationship in which someone is willing to hold space not cognitively in an embodied relational manner Mm. that involves sometimes no words proto conversation. Yeah. And that's how people realize they can tolerate more. They can go farther. They can be (laughs) more like experience greater, greater depths of, Mm -hmm. of, um, experience. Um, but, but 
don't skip the moment. Yes. Like sit with it. Mm-hmm. And then let the system naturally guide. Yes, because it will. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Hmm. That feels like a good ground. Yeah. It felt, I don't know, I, I, maybe I'm just speaking to my own implicit self, but it felt kind of shaky at first. Yeah. Because there's so much information. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to disseminate. Um, I would also encourage people to just go read the article. Yeah. There's like a ton of one-liners that are not like, sure, does an amazing job of like giving you all the science-y, like yes. um, interpersonal neurobiological kind of jargon that for us gets a so jack because they're constellatory constructs, but for other people are like, uh, I don't not know having what that it. is. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have any visual kind of yeah. representation of that, but then he, he throws out these one liners that are just like powerful Gold. summaries that like hang on to those. Yes. Um, yeah. So. And to me, just to meet you in that space, like I felt very unsure, even though we had the outline. Yeah. It just felt so chaotic in a way of like, there's so much information here. What's the most important point to disseminate right now? Yeah. And to me, I think we, I feel good about where we landed mm-hmm. because it found a place of meaning in us Yeah. and what we reflect on together mm-hmm. as meaningful. Yeah. Proto conversations expressed through the right brain, implicit and embodied self. And that is synchronized by the other, mm-hmm. which lays the groundwork for more complex brain development, mm-hmm. more complex relationality. Mm-hmm. That is why inner subjectivity is so important. Yes. I love it. Thank you guys for listening in. As always. As always. You. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode. Find us on our website at beyondhealingcenter.com slash media. Also, subscribe to our Patreon to support us at patreon.com slash beyondhealingcenter. Find all episodes on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening.